I think one of the general messages that we're trying to push out is that if you are um, sick in any way, you need to stay home, not even necessarily get tested. If you have mild symptoms and you're not feeling well, is that you should stay home and isolate yourself from other people. Even going in to get tested can you know, can um, expose others in the waiting room, um, in public, et cetera. So the message that a lot of places are starting to push, including us here in Rhode Island, is that if you have mild symptoms, just stay home until you're better. We're in an unusual moment. Schools are closed. We're being asked to socially distance ourselves from our neighbors. And in general, society is bunkering down in the face of novel coronavirus. What is COVID-19? What can it do to our bodies? And what are the risks? How should we respond, both as individuals and families and as a society? Should you be buying 80 rolls of toilet paper right now? We're joined today by Dr. Philip Chan, an infectious disease expert and physician at Merriam and Rhode Island Hospitals. He's also working at the front line of Rhode Island's response to the pandemic. We talked early and by phone before he went back into another day's work on the state's response team. If this is the first you've heard about coronavirus, then you're practicing some extreme social distancing. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Well, Phil Chan, welcome to the 30,000 Leagues podcast. Thank you for having me. So when people talk about novel coronavirus, I take it they might mean the virus itself, or they might be referring to the associated disease, uh, coronavirus disease 2019 or COVID-19. Let's walk through some of the numbers just to set the stage. As of today, March 16th, 2020, what's our best estimate of how many people globally are actually infected by the virus? So globally, there's been over 150,000 confirmed cases uh, with almost 6,000 deaths. And as many people probably know at this point, uh, most of those are in China, uh, have been in China. So 81,000 cases have been confirmed in China. However, the rest of the world is unfortunately catching up pretty fast. Um, many people have probably also heard about uh, you know other countries that have been affected. These include Korea, where there's over 8,000 cases. Italy, which has over 21,000 cases at the moment. Other countries in Europe are experiencing exponential increases. France, uh, Spain, Germany, Switzerland, the UK, all with uh, over 1,000 cases uh, as well. How many of the people that are infected are actually showing COVID-19 symptoms, including in particular how many people have died from it? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the good news, and I think um, people are rightly concerned about this virus, but I think one of the messages is that actually the majority of people tend to have mild symptoms. So over 80% of people tend to have uh, mild symptoms, which can include fever, cough, sore throat, um, uh, nasal congestion, uh, et cetera. Only about 5% or less of people have severe symptoms. And this data comes from the first uh, 44,000 plus cases that were observed in China. So. Uh, we do have some data on this, uh, and that should, and some of that should be reassuring. The concerning part, um, we can talk a little bit about this, is that people over 60, so some of the older population, um, are experiencing higher, higher, much higher rates of mortality than younger people. So what are the estimates on infections and fatalities in the United States? So at this time, uh, so if you look at the CDC uh, webpage, and the CDC uh, updates its numbers Monday through Friday, um, there's been uh, 1,629 cases uh, in the U.S. with 41 deaths. However, um, I think, and this is just uh, uh, points to the fact that things are so rapidly evolving, if you look at the Johns Hopkins uh, data, which tends to be more up-to-date, 
Uh, There's now 3,774 confirmed cases in the U.S. with 69 deaths. Uh, 42 of those are in Washington state. So again, things are moving uh, very fast. How about here in Rhode Island? Here in Rhode Island, uh, as of yesterday, uh, there's been 20 cases. Um, so we're certainly not seeing as many as some of the uh, the other places around the U.S. yet. Uh, but 20 cases is, is certainly nothing to um, uh, nothing to sneeze at. Pun intended. <laughs> Pun not intended. <laughs> so, I mean, I got so at first blush, you know, these numbers they might seem a lot less serious than something like seasonal flu, which I think infects what like a, like a billion people a year. Carol's. 360, 300 to 600,000 annually, something like that. Um, if Assuming I've got those numbers right, why are health professionals so worried about this? So I think for, uh, for a couple reasons. I think um, the spread uh, at which uh, COVID-19 is uh, transmitting through the population is concerning. And I think uh, the thing that's noticeably different, so you talked about some of the mortality and the death rates, in people over 60, and these are some uh, these are some estimates uh, in in the peer-reviewed public health uh, literature. So, for people over 60, the uh, the mortality rate for this is approaching 18 plus percent um, in people that are 80 years of age or older, um, and five uh, percent or higher in those 60 plus. So, there's a huge focus, and one of the things we're trying to do here in Rhode Island, as well as across the United States, is really to protect and limit transmission. Um, in individuals that are age 60 or older. Uh, the rates of those rates are incredibly high, and we're worried about overwhelming the system in terms of respiratory support. So as um, many people may be aware, one of the complications of this uh, virus is the need for um, uh, mechanical ventilation and um, invasive ventilation, which means potentially being on a breathing machine, et cetera. And so the early reports out of China indicated that upwards of 20 plus percent of people um, who are hospitalized may need some um, ventilation support. So if people, if, if you know, you know, a thousand people present to the hospitals with COVID-19 and a significant percent of those require uh, a breathing machine, that could easily overwhelm the system. And that's when we talk about instead of seeing a spike in cases, we really want to, quote, flatten the curve. And some people may have heard of that terms, but it basically means that we want people to trickle into the healthcare system so we can appropriately provide the medical care and not have everyone show up at once. How does the mortality rate of 18 percent over for folks over 60 compare to other, other diseases like common flu or even Ebola? So Ebola, rates of mortality for Ebola tend to be much higher than other infectious diseases. And that's one reason in the past why Ebola has received so much press. It's a very, very, um, uh, a virus with very high mortality rates. Um, The rates for uh, uh, influenza um, tend to be less than 18%. I actually don't have those numbers off the top of of my head. But as a general rule of thumb, the mortality rate of influenza um, tends to be uh, less than 1% for for the general population. The one thing that's really different about this virus compared to influenza, if you look at the flu influenza, there's generally um, uh, a mortality curve, meaning that uh, influenza tends to affect those that are very young and very old. The one reassuring thing about COVID-19, if there is anything that's reassuring, is that we tend to see, um, is that children, kids, uh, people under the age of 20 tend to have very mild disease. And that's different than flu. 
so we don't see kids dying, which uh, obviously is, is a good thing. So is it really the mortality rate that's causing most of the concern? The mortality rate as well as the rate of people needing um, uh, mechanical ventilation. So it's sort of those two things uh, that, that are also related. As you look over the coming weeks and months, what are the projections for how this might unfold? So I think if we look at what's happening in China at the moment, cases have leveled off. Now, I think we have to remind ourselves that this all started in China back in December. So if you think about it, it's been about you know three-ish months. Um, if you look at what's happened in Italy over the last several weeks, things are exponentially increasing. So if I had to guess, and this is a guess, and it depends on um, how effective the measures are that we've taken, and we can perhaps talk about that here in the U.S., uh, but we're probably looking at a matter of at least a couple months for this to truly end. And when you say end, do you mean the disease gets entirely eradicated or some sort of stable state comes into play? When things start to wind down, so less, so people aren't being uh, infected anymore. So um, I wouldn't say everyone cured, uh, but I would say when we're not starting to see um, an increase in cases, things should level off in terms of number of people reporting uh, new diagnoses. How do epidemiologists actually make these projections about how things are about likely to unfold over time? So there's a number of models that can be used, and there's some of those that have been described currently in the literature. I think when things first start unfolding, uh, it's unclear, and that's why research and studies are needed. We need to know aspects of transmission. Uh, we need to know aspects of, of uh, clinical outcomes, et cetera. One of the most concerning things, when this first started, and the reason why people were so concerned. If you look at the very first reports coming out of China, uh, the mortality rate attributed to COVID-19 was around 15%. Uh, so that's obviously super high. Uh, that result, um, those reports were a little bit biased and that all those people were initially presenting to a hospital and relatively sick. And with, like, some, like a lot of infections, the way that COVID-19 was first identified was a cluster, a spike uh, of increased cases of, of pneumonia that seemed unusual and atypical. And that's really how this whole thing was first identified. So what's a worst case scenario look like? I think what happened in Wuhan, uh, China actually is a pretty worst case situation, which we're obviously trying to avoid here. If you look at what happened in Wuhan, the number of cases just exponentially increased over um, a month, month and a half. Uh, before before leveling out. And in fact, if you look at what happened, the healthcare system in Wuhan was um, quickly overwhelmed, such that the mortality rate that we see in Wuhan is uh, significantly higher, at least double that of what we see in surrounding mainland China, as well as what we um, believe we, the rate is across the rest of the world. So that goes back to my point that we really want to see these cases kind of trickle in so our healthcare system has the capacity to adequately care for people that are sick with COVID-19. And I guess what I'm really searching for with this question is it seems like the modeling year has a lot of uncertainty in it. And depending on what that mortality rate really turns out to be, the projections for how serious this could be vary quite a lot. How do you how do you think about just how much uncertainty there is in the projections? 
Well, I think some of these limitations are inherent in any modeling, which is why when someone presents modeling data to me, you know, we should definitely use it and 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 um, apply it. But in the back of my mind is always that, you know, models are just that, they're models. They're based on hypotheticals, they're based on theoretical data. So I think they're useful and have their place um, in terms of projections. Uh, but you're absolutely right. A model is only good as the data coming in. Of course, uh, many people have heard of the term garbage in, garbage out. Uh, so that's why it's, it's appropriate to be thoughtful in some of these models. Um, and you're also absolutely right that these models are based on, need to be based on uh, accurate and real-time data, which limits, which may limit uh, how effective uh, the model actually is. I will say what's reassuring, you know, we've had 20 cases to date here in the state of Rhode Island, right? And so, um, and this is, is this is public knowledge, and this gentleman has uh, written a story that appears in the lay media about this. But the only person that's required um, advanced uh, intensive care is the very first case we actually diagnosed in Rhode Island. So out of 20 people, no one has died. Um, only, and to my knowledge, only that one person has been hospitalized, and that person required mechanical ventilation. So you can see from the care that people are getting in the U.S. and just from these small numbers. Uh, that we're doing okay, and the mortality rate probably isn't uh, probably isn't as high as what well it isn't as high as what we saw initially um, in the epidemic in China. And the different mortality rate we're seeing is that because of better data coming online, or do you think the virus is actually different as it's manifesting in the U.S.? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. I think one, I truly do believe actually the United States has among the best healthcare. Um, uh, physicians and providers and hospitals in the world. So I think uh, the level of care we provide is often um, above that of other countries. Um, and also, I think the data, we have really robust data collection systems, and that's really a tribute to our public health and surveillance systems. Um, I think there's a lot of us that question some of the early data coming out of China. Um, I think uh, it's, it's helpful and useful. Uh, however, I think there are still some limitations of the of the, of the data that was coming out of China. So I think here in the US, we do have some hard numbers um, and we're actually experiencing it. Uh, um, so I think what we've seen now are some hard numbers on mortality. I do point people to Washington state as well, where there's been currently to date 42 deaths um, and a number, and some people may be aware, but they actually had an outbreak in a nursing home there, a long-term care facility that was really devastating with multiple deaths uh, in that setting. And that, again, points to the fact that uh, we really need to think about and limit transmission in order to especially protect some of our, our older uh, adults in our community. Given the data and the models that we do have right now, what's the range of projections in terms of how many people might get infected in the United States? How many might have serious symptoms? Yeah, the projection so far, uh, worst case scenario, we're talking millions and millions of people. Obviously, we hope we don't get there. There's been many different uh, interventions that have been recommended from the CDC uh, here in the state of Rhode Island for people that live here. Um, you know, state of emergency has been declared both across the state and in various cities, the city of Providence, school has been canceled, universities have let their students go home, uh, public gatherings have been limited, et cetera. So uh, this is serious. This is something that we have never seen in our lifetime. Um, and hopefully these measures that we've taken to limit contact with people and to, uh, to highlight uh, social distancing will work to stem transmission. And I guess to maybe come at this a little bit differently, if it turned out that the infection and mortality rates were 
a lot lower than initially estimated just from the Wuhan cases. Do you worry that the like how how should a listener think about whether the response that we're doing right now is well calibrated? You know, particularly if it turns out that the infection and mortality rates are, turn out to be a lot lower than people initially thought. Yeah, so it's a great question. So um, I think for the general uh, for the general public, there is I still would not be overly concerned. Um, Again, the major groups that are at risk are people that are older, over 60, and people that are also immunocompromised. And I think there is cause for concern in those populations uh, where we've seen, again, we've seen even here in the U.S. and Washington State, uh, a high mortality rate among those populations. We do need more data and better data to understand exactly who's infected, uh, which populations are at risk in terms of of immunocompromised people and people that may be older, what comorbidities, what other diseases may contribute uh, to high mortality rates. But that is one of the biggest reasons why um, people are so concerned and why we're taking these measures. For me, as someone in their 40s, I'm a little bit less concerned about getting seriously sick from this virus. Although I will say, in fact, that a couple of weeks ago, you know, there's a 42-year-old doctor um, that one of the first doctors taken care of who had passed away without any medical history. I think that also strikes home that we are seeing some other relatively healthy people die younger uh, from this virus. But one of the reasons why we're um, uh, being so aggressive is because there is a concern, especially among, um, again, the older population and immunocompromised uh, in terms of, of being seriously sick. So we do need to take this seriously. A lot of the measures in place, uh, I think for the average um, younger American, um, there's really not as much reason for concern. I think one of the general messages that we're trying to push out is that if you are um, sick in any way, you need to stay home, not even necessarily get tested. If you have mild symptoms and you're not feeling well, is that you should stay home and isolate yourself from other people. Even going in to get tested can you know, can um, expose others in the waiting room, um, in public, et cetera. So the message that a lot of places are starting to push, including us here in Rhode Island, is that if you have mild symptoms, just stay home until you're better. With all of the various projections and people wondering whether we might be in a worst case scenario, best case scenario, or somewhere in between, when do you think we'll kind of start to have more certainty in what state of the world we're in? You know, is it, are we talking days, weeks? Is it something that we're going to quickly understand better as more tests rapidly kind of roll out? When will we know what the likely course of the disease is? I think it's going to be one of those things where we look back in hindsight to see what happened. I think we're living it now. I think things are so uncertain. Uh, You know, there's been challenges with testing. Uh, There's been challenges with data, uh, et cetera. So, Unfortunately, I think hindsight's going to be 2020, and we'll look back to be able to see what happened. You know, looking at what's happened in other countries, and you know, Europe, our, our close um, uh, partners and colleagues, uh, certainly in Europe. Uh, you know, Italy. You know, uh, you know, over 20,000 cases as we speak. Uh, you know, Spain, Germany, according to Hopkins, now over 5,000 cases. So, I think if it's if it, we're lagging behind some of these other countries, uh, I think China. You know first obviously experienced the brunt of this. Um, I think Europe is experiencing an uh, you know, exponential increase. You know, Italy and Spain have gone into lockdown, et cetera. So I think it's going to be one of those things where we look back to see how effective and to reassess. Again, these are really unprecedented times. We've never seen something like this 
uh, of this scope, certainly uh, in, the, in, in recent times. Let's talk a little bit about coronavirus disease 2019 or COVID-19 itself. What are the early symptoms? Yeah, so like many infectious diseases, uh, including flu, there's really a spectrum. So uh, coronaviruses, and just to back up for a second, there's, uh, we've known about coronaviruses since the mid-60s, 1960s, when they were first discovered. And there's four types of coronaviruses, actually, that commonly circulate throughout the population. In fact, my guess is, is that most people listening to this have actually been infected with uh, one of the human coronaviruses at some point in their life. They're actually responsible for about 10 to 30% of the, quote, common cold, and most people do absolutely fine. What's different about COVID-19 and um, uh, this new coronavirus is that it uh, mutated and, and uh, uh, recom- what we call recombination with some of the genetic strains from animals to form a new coronavirus that hasn't been seen by humans, and that, makes it, that has made it especially dangerous um, to the human species and why more people tend to get sick. The symptoms um, of coronavirus actually vary, uh, again, as with a lot of infectious diseases, from very mild to very severe. So some people, and we think we see very mild symptoms more in children and kids, some people may have slight fevers, um, muscle aches, a general sense of fatigue, um, and that sore throat, et cetera. And that can certainly be more um, pronounced and severe uh, in some people, especially those that are older, with significant fever, shortness of breath, trouble breathing, um, et cetera. How can you tell the difference just from common flu? That's a great question. And that's one thing that has complicated our response. Uh, The fact that we actually are still uh, in widespread flu season, although it appears to be decreasing, but that is a, a key point. In fact, Uh, that has complicated diagnosis of this virus. So the fact is, is that you really can't tell the difference. um, And that's made it difficult to distinguish between the two. And is that also true for even just everyday allergies for folks that are having scratchy eyes and throat and that are getting worried? What should they be thinking? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it it is actually, so there are of course some, um, some common uh, symptoms of whether it be allergies or um, influenza or um, other diseases, but that but you're absolutely right in that it's made it difficult to distinguish between other common cold viruses, the flu, et cetera, and COVID-19. And that's presented a diagnostic challenge. Um, and even, you know, I've looked at some data recently about people coming in to their doctors, right, with, with cough and, and fever, and the majority of things, right, are not related to uh, COVID-19, but related to other common cold viruses and respiratory viruses, uh, and it's made it really difficult to tell. So if I think I might have this right now, what should I do? So at this point, uh, if you have symptoms that are relatively mild, the, the, the strong recommendation is just to stay home uh, until you feel better. If you need to seek medical attention, if you are, have concerns, please do call your doctor, call your physician before you go in. Uh, not every uh, medical clinic is equipped to see people. Uh, we have, uh, some of you may also have seen that in general, there's a shortage of what we call PPE or personal protective equipment across the US. These include uh, masks and respirators. Uh, so there's a shortage and not all uh, clinics are set up to see people with potential COVID-19. So please call your physician first. Um, our EDs and hospitals are equipped. So as a last resort, and certainly if people need uh, to and feel sick enough, uh, please do go to one of the local hospital emergency rooms. 
And I'm sure a lot of people's definition of severe can vary a lot. What do you have in mind whenever you're thinking of a threshold to start to call your doctor? Great question. So for me, severe disease really means any trouble breathing. So breathing obviously is a key part of life. So anything um, in terms of trouble breathing, trouble catching your breath, uh, if you can't eat or drink, uh, that's a huge problem and people should seek medical attention um, uh, and other symptoms. That's one of the things that you sort of um, asked about, what are the symptoms of COVID-19? Uh, there can be a, a huge variation of symptoms, things like diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, you know, stomach pain, headaches, um, et cetera. So there's a huge variation of symptoms that affects everyone a little bit differently. But I think at the end of the day, if people are having problems breathing, or unable to eat or drink, those are some of the concerning uh, things to me that should prompt people to seek medical attention. The coronavirus test that everybody's trying to get rapidly expanded and available right now, how does that work? So the test is a PCR test. Uh, it's a test, um, you know, PCR tests are very common uh, uh, in today's uh, medical diagnostic world. Um, basically what happens is you have what's known as primers, which are short pieces of DNA or RNA. Uh, that are um, complementary to the genetic material of coronavirus. And so these primers basically will attach, if you have coronavirus uh, in you, if they have coronavirus, um, the primers will attach to the genetic material of the coronavirus, and you'll be able to tell there's a signal attached to those primers um, that will basically light up and let the let the lab know that that person is indeed positive. So these tests are, are how we actually diagnose a number of other diseases, um, including flu, um, and uh, are being used to diagnose COVID-19 as well. And ideally, how much testing would be happening right now? So it's a great question. So um, there's two schools of thought on this. Uh, one is, and there are some countries like uh, South Korea, that have really rolled out widespread testing to everyone. So anyone that has flu-like symptoms gets tested, uh, and people that are positive get uh, get isolated with the virus. On the other hand, there's been a number of places too, and uh, including here in the U.S., where testing has not been as accessible. Uh, and the thought behind that, one of the one of the thinkings, and I know we focused a lot on testing, and testing certainly is important. But the key message for some of this, too, is that if you're sick, you should just stay home. And people who have mild symptoms uh, may not even need a test, right, because the treatment is going to be the same regardless. And even with things like the flu or otherwise, people who are sick should be um, self-isolating at home. So, so as things evolve here in the U.S., we've still tried to really figure out where the place of testing is. It does seem sort of um, intuitive that, of course, anyone who's sick needs a test. Uh, but just cautioning people to think about the fact that in order to get a test, you have to go to a medical provider, someone has to swab you. And so there is the risk of uh, spreading the virus just from leaving your house going to get that test. So um, like a lot of other states to this point and here in Rhode Island, we're starting to encourage people with mild symptoms to just stay home and ride it out uh, and reserving testing for those people that we're more concerned about. So testing for people that are over 60, testing for hospitalized patients or inpatients, um, and testing for people in nursing homes um, and other group settings where if they're positive, then we'd have to do something about isolating them from other people. The respiratory problems that the virus can cause, biologically speaking, how does that happen? 
Great question. You know, as I mentioned, there's been a number of other coronaviruses that we've known about for, for decades, and, and those generally just cause uh, symptoms of the mild common cold. The thing about COVID-19 is that it has a higher affinity for lung receptors. And so these uh, receptors are called ACE2 receptors, and they're present in the lung. And what's been shown now, what's been shown is that the virus um, uh, binds more tightly and has a preference for some of these lung receptors. And so what does that mean? It means the virus is more likely to cause pneumonia. One of the things that we don't know is why the virus seems to affect people um, that are older compared to younger. So one would expect, of course, in children um, who are not, who don't have as robust immune systems that they should actually be sicker. And that's not the case. And there's a number of theories to explain that. Uh, but there's no proven science yet as to why children actually don't get as sick as adults. And the need for mechanical ventilators can come in in severe cases. How many ventilators do we have available in the country right now and in Rhode Island? So uh, at this time, I would say we have uh, an adequate number. Um, I don't know how many we have across the country. Uh, here in Rhode Island, uh, for example, the Rhode Island Department of Health uh, does get daily reports about the number of ventilators and the number in use. Uh, the thing also, to I think, to reassure people is that we have a stockpile of extra ventilators. Um, all states do, and we do here in Rhode Island. And these have been things that we've uh, done as part of emergency preparedness uh, to prevent for things just exactly like this. So. Um, at this time, there is not a shortage of ventilators. We are doing fine. The hospitals are doing okay. Um, and we're, we have prepared. We have been preparing uh, should there be a lack of, uh, of ventilators, and we have extra supplies of them. So my understanding is there's currently no medical treatment for COVID-19, but there's rapid development, or at least people are trying to develop quickly, vaccines and antivirals. What's the difference between a vaccine and an antiviral? So antivirals usually refer to medications that are active against um, the infection. Uh, vaccines uh, refer to, and I'm sure um, most of the listeners have had vaccines, hopefully, uh, but vaccines, basically for a vaccine and, and how this will work for COVID-19 is we'll take a little piece of the um, virus, uh, a dead piece, a piece that does not cause infection. So this may be one of the little parts or components or proteins on the outside of the coronavirus, and they'll, 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 inject that into a person and a person's immune system will generate antibodies like it does in any infection uh, to attack the coronavirus. And this is sort of the basis of how most vaccines work. Um, so we do anticipate uh, that there are, there are multiple companies working on vaccines. Uh, the timeline, the expected timeline is uh, about a year's time away from um, now. So hopefully maybe sooner. Um, I've already seen some reports that at least one vaccine candidate has entered phase one trials, uh, but we do anticipate we're about uh, a year uh, a year out. There's been a number of agents that have been looked at um, in vitro or studied in the lab to see if it has if they have effects against COVID-19. The most promising one out there and the one that's entered uh, clinical trials both here in the United States and as well as in China is called remdesivir. Um, and that's a drug that was manufactured by Gilead Sciences. It was actually first developed for Ebola, but it's shown in, in culture, at least, that it does uh, have um, effect uh, against COVID-19. And um, that is the drug of choice that's being recommended for someone that's severely sick. So one of the key points about remdesivir is that it's only administered uh, intravenously, uh, and it's really only for people who are hospitalized with severe illness. 
There's been a num- number of other drugs that people may or may not see that have um, that may have some activity. None of them are well studied, um, and they're all uh, currently understudied. However, to s- determine their effectiveness against COVID-19. If you're infected and recovered from COVID-19, can you get it again? This is one of the great outstanding questions uh, that is unknown, unfortunately. I've seen some reports that say that people may be able to get it again. Um, and I've also seen some reports that does that do say uh, that people do develop antibodies and there may be some uh, immunity from that. We don't know how susceptible people are. We don't know how long lasting immunity is. These are questions that um, definitely need further study at this time. And for the cases that it looked like someone is maybe getting it again, is that because of new strains of the virus coming online, mutating, or the same strain reinfecting the same person? So we don't know. So there have been some published um, reports that there may be a couple strains out there. So we don't know um, about how one or the other may affect people or reinfect people. Um, One of the things that in this case contributes to people uh, being immune or once they are are infected is the production of antibodies at the, at the, what we call the mucosal surfaces. So production of antibodies at the throat and the lung sites. And there are very specific types of antibodies, which are called IgA antibodies. And so what's, what's needed to understand is when someone is infected um, and recovers, how, you know, the presence um, of these IgA antibodies, do they persist um, first off, are they even made uh, to adequate amounts? And then how they persist over time and the, how the body responds, should it be exposed again uh, to coronavirus and how the body responds if it's exposed to the same versus a slightly different strain? These are all questions that no one quite knows the answer to yet. So before we have a vaccine developed or antivirals even, how at a population level does the disease sort of play out? Like, I mean, does it naturally die out at some point? Or is this the kind of thing that would just continue to infect and reinfect everyone until, you know, into the sunset? Yeah, it's unclear at this point, uh, what's going to happen. Theoretically, if everyone stayed home, uh, and no one was in contact with each other, you know, this whole thing could be over in a couple weeks. So what's unknown, and what some people have hypothesized is that potentially this COVID-19 virus could um, enter um, a phase where it is present in the population and continuously uh, recirculates. And we see that um, certainly with things like influenza. Uh, we see that with some of the other types of coronavirus. And that's why um, work towards a vaccine is especially important uh, at this time. Hopefully what happens, and I think time will tell, especially in China, hopefully what happens is that the majority of the population or some 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 proportion of the population is infected um, and develops immunity. I think a lot of us are hoping that that is in fact the case. Um, And there is some precedent of that, of course, with other uh, infections. And that that proportion of the population, which is now immune to the virus, really prevents further propagation of the virus and hopefully just dies out. I mean, that's the best case scenario. Uh, But I think that with work towards the vaccine and, and, and these public health measures that we are assuming otherwise at the moment, hoping for the best, but also sort of preparing for some of the other scenarios. If everybody stays home for two weeks, whenever everyone comes back into day-to-day life, what's to prevent 
the disease from just kind of catching fire again two weeks from now, two two weeks and a day from now? Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, that would be a hypothetical best case scenario. But theoretically, if uh, if everyone stays home, then the proportion of people that are sick uh, with infection uh, the infection will die out. The you know your the you know the people will fight the virus and um, return to uh, to an uninfected state and uh, no longer be transmitting the virus. So um, so that would be the best case, and it's sort of the theory behind what limiting mass gatherings and and really clamping down on uh, on, on on public contacts. Uh, hopefully, that's the case. At the very least, what we're doing now should limit the spread, uh, and hopefully, hopefully. Um, it will buy us time, and hopefully, it will uh, die out over time. That's kind of what we're we're hoping for. And I guess to come at that in a different way is the hope that will actually prevent most people from getting infected, or that most people will end up getting infected, but but very slowly in a way that's mild for most folks, and for those who are severe have severe symptoms, the healthcare resources are adequate to help them. So I think both uh, both are goals uh, of this. So we're hoping, or the first choice, of course, will be where we just prevent transmission um, to others, and especially those who may be more at risk. Uh, and hopefully, the uh, transmission um, of the virus in the community will 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 uh, fade out over time. If that doesn't happen, then the second point is is also a goal target of ours, which is to limit spread, of course. And as people get sick, and certainly for those that have more severe disease, is that they will trickle into the healthcare system and not overload it so that they can be provided the best care possible. How contagious is the virus? So the, so there's a lot that we don't know about this virus. Um, I did read one report based on some of the experiences in China that suggested uh, that this had an attack rate of about 15%. And that was based on a study that looked at contact tracing. So when you take known positive cases and you, you sort of uh, talk to all their contacts, people that they had close contact with, that there were about 15% of those um, that tested positive for the virus. So it's one of those things that's certainly not 100%, uh, which is also why we're recommending some um, basic uh, public health you know, you know, hygiene measures like wash your hands, you know, don't shake hands with people. Um, limit some of your some of the distance between people. So it's not certainly not 100%. Uh, what we do know about the virus is that you generally have to be within six feet, uh, and you also have to be in close contact. It's thought that that really means around 10 to 15 minutes. And what really has to happen for this virus to be transmitted is someone needs to the person who's infected needs to sneeze or cough, and those uh, those virus particles, those droplets of the virus particles need to enter a person's mucous membrane. So that could be the throat, uh, the mouth, uh, or the eyes, et cetera. How is it that just soap, washing your hands, can kill the virus, but we don't have a vaccine or an antiviral? Is this thing hard to kill or not? Yeah, so the good news is that um, all local household cleaners seem to kill the virus. So that includes alcohol-based cleaners, bleach-based cleaners. So all the routine stuff that we're already using to clean services tend to um, tend to kill the virus, which is which is good. Um, washing hands, you know, is one of those one of those basic uh, hygiene things that we do, and um, basically washes away the virus off surfaces, your hands, etc. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we encourage it. Does the virus remain stable on everyday surfaces? So I'm thinking, you know, door handles, knobs, bus seats 
playground equipment? How do you kind of think about its prevalence on just everyday materials? So there is evidence that the virus can survive for certainly hours and potentially for days in the right circumstances. And so there are studies out there that have shown that in the right environmental conditions, uh, this virus can uh, persist. And so this certainly can be an avenue for transmission. Uh, we don't know exactly how easily the virus is transmitted off services. Um, and that's something that more study needs to be needed. We do think that the majority uh, of uh, the rapid transmission do include through um, coughing and sneezing and um, et cetera. So that's where we focused, uh, certainly for surfaces and um, for people that have known disease, we have, you know, there's, there's schools, for example, that have done deep cleaning. So uh, we do think that the virus can be transmitted off of objects, uh, but we are not clear on how often that can occur and what the propensity for that is. And here's a couple of particular examples in case you have any guidance or advice. What about when you're at the grocery store and getting food? Should you be worried or be doing anything with the food materials that you're buying? Great question. So I don't think we know the answer to that. Uh, what I would recommend people for, to do, for example, is to wash their hands before they go into the grocery store um, and to wash their hands after the grocery store. And certainly for fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, those should be washed. Um, obviously, meat will be cooked. So I think just, again, taking some general hygiene measures will go a long way in keeping us all safe. How about packages that get delivered to your house? Yeah, so I'm, I would be less concerned about that. Um, I think that the virus, uh, again, it it can survive for a period of time um, on surfaces, but I would I would uh, hypothesize by the time that most packages get to people, uh, should it should they have been touched by someone with uh, with COVID nineteen, that the virus is probably dead by then. Um, in general, I wouldn't worry about packages and other things being delivered to the house. And animals, I understand dogs and things like that don't seem to actually get infected, but can they carry the virus on their fur in a way that transmits to other humans? That I don't know about. I have seen some reports that suggest that animals actually may be able to get infected. In fact, this uh, what we think happened uh, with this coronavirus, we think that actually the initial source was a bat, believe it or not. So there is evidence for sure that coronavirus can um, uh, infect and be present in certain animal species. Uh, I know that there is some data out there um, about that, uh, and I think a lot of that is still uh, unknown. So coming back explicitly to the public health response here, I take it one of the primary recommendations, which you've already alluded to, is, is social distancing. What in particular do you mean by that? So social distancing refers to just keeping some space between you and other people. And what we know about this uh, virus, as I mentioned, is that generally you have to be within six feet of someone uh, who then uh, coughs or sneezes uh, or otherwise um, uh, comes in contact. So just by keeping some distance between you and other people uh, will go a long way to limiting the spread of this virus uh, in the community. And this is one where I know a lot of people are trying to navigate this day to day in really particular ways. So, you know, for instance, if I've got a, f a family and kids, how if how can I take my kids to playground out and about in the neighborhood? Like, what are the things I can do safely still? Yeah, I saw an interesting news segment the other day that uh, that, that was entitled uh, Nature's Not Closed, <laughs> even though everything else is. So 
Um, I think being outside is totally fine. I think obviously within a given family unit, it's difficult to um, to to have social distancing. But I think the family unit itself needs to practice some degree of social distancing from others. And this includes, unfortunately, and as a, you know, I'm a father of an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old, um, so I know what this is like. But unfortunately, it involves um, probably limiting play dates. It does involve limiting going out in public. Um, and it does uh, involve limiting probably some playgrounds. So meaning that areas that are going to be crowded with other kids or frequently touched by other kids. Um, I do think we all have to do our part for the short term here uh, to limit transmission. And so when you say go outside, you you really literally mean like out in open spaces, woods, parks, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So we, you know, we took a, a walk through, uh, through, um, through one of the state parks the other day. Uh, you know, we've been running, going outside, et cetera. So, uh, yes, going outside, but also limiting uh, group outdoor activities uh, for sure. Up until this moment, one of the other major public health concerns was actually you know, so social isolation, so-called deaths of despair, people feeling lonely, the sort of angst by not having employment. Do you worry in this moment that while we might help on the virus with social distancing, we might actually exacerbate some of the problems of social isolation? We do actually, and this has been the this has been the balancing act, of course, between um, socialization and and the need for public health intervention. And we're very concerned about that because obviously, um, humans are very social beings. And so, what we're hoping is just for the short term is that people can limit uh, their contact with others. And we anticipate and and really do hope this is just for the short term. And based on what we've seen. Thus far, it should just be, um, you know, days to weeks at the most. But you're absolutely right. It's that this is a concern. Um, you know, we need to hopefully people are OK with this and hopefully we can find other ways to engage and interact uh, for at least a short period of time um, until all this is over. So we're taking a lot of dramatic measures, shutting down schools, daycares, uh, some places, restaurants and things like that. How do we think about and make decisions on when to start returning to everyday life? Like, what are, what are the things you want to see to make decisions like to open schools back up again? So I think what we need to see is, a, is, a, is no new infections for a period of time, no new diagnoses. And so um, one thing that the public health – so one of the key functions of the CDC and the local public health um, departments is surveillance. And what surveillance ref- – means, of course, is just that, is looking to see um, what, how many new cases, where they're occurring, et cetera. And so we are still, if you look at the data across the U.S. and here in Rhode Island, uh, we are still sort of in this phase where things are increasing um, in terms of new infections, new cases. And what we really need to see, I think, before people, before, quote, life starts to return to normal, um, is a number of cases really kind of um, um, faltering out, really decreasing um, without any new cases being diagnosed for a period of time from days to, to a week or two. So no new infections for like a couple of weeks. Ideally, yep. And then you would flip a switch and start opening back up institutions, or is there a period of time you need to wait further still? I think what we'll see is once the new cases um, kind of, kind of um, plateau out and, 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 and cases are not being reported, is I think people will just be – uh, go back to work or school, et cetera. I do think 
um, you know, if you look at what's happened with the universities, uh, et cetera, I mean, the universities essentially are doing uh, long distance learning for the rest of the semester. So certainly some of what we're seeing now will persist uh, for a period of time. And obviously when summer comes, uh, schools will largely be off. So I think, uh, and you know, that's two, you know, two, three months away, right? So I think um, some of the concerns about back to normal will be, we'll kind of go through the summer here. If we can just kind of um, hold out till the summer, I think a lot of things will will be fine by then. And that makes me think again of that earlier question about the possibility of kind of a resurgence in the virus spreading. Is this a kind of thing where, or how do you think about the possibility of things are looking stable, we turn the everyday life activities back on, and then, you know, maybe in the summertime or something like that, the virus flourishes again. How do you assess the risk of that scenario or think we should go about handling it? Yeah, well, we're all going to have to be vigilant, both as a community population and certainly our public health institutions. What I what I suspect is happening, and it's it's it has happened uh, across the world, and it's probably happening to some degree in the United States, is that there's significant transmission going on that we just haven't picked up. And so, as we look at some of the cases uh, across different states, um, I think we have to realize that certainly in places like Washington State and California, the number of new cases that we see is sort of just the the tip of the iceberg. And so, hopefully, what happens is that as and especially in sort of the younger populations who are just having mild disease is that people are getting this they're developing they're going to develop immunity they're going to be less likely to get the virus and that's going to limit future outbreaks from occurring so um, there may be small pockets in the future Uh, my guess is is that over time that this virus will be added to the routine respiratory panels that we generally check for so that includes things like flu um, other coronaviruses, rhinoviruses, things like that. So, so I think as we progress forward here, I think we'll be much more, um, uh, much more wary about searching for this. We'll have the capacity to search for it, and hopefully, what happens again is that a subset of the population who's had this will develop immunity, and then hopefully that will buy us time until the vaccine's ready, and then we all get vaccinated. Do you think that gaps in health insurance or underinsurance are going to cause problems for curbing the epidemic? I think that insurance uh, in general is a problem. I mean, for anyone um, that has insurance, uh, myself included, uh, most of us at this point have large co-pays and deductibles, certainly with private insurance. One thing that the insurance industry has stepped up is to, um, and this is with pressure from the government, is to cover certainly the cost of uh, care as it relates to coronavirus. So uh, both the, the national level and the local level, and I know there's been some work done in Rhode Island on this, is that the insurers are um, are stepping up to cover the cost of care as it relates to COVID-19. And likewise, what about the lack of paid, paid sick leave? So that is also a big issue as well. And um, I know that the state um, has opened up some options, uh, including access to unemployment, um, et cetera. There's also uh, some uh, some recommendations from the government to employers to really um, offer a little more flexibility at this um, unusual time as well. So uh, this so this is a, a big concern for a lot of people, rightly so. And the state, as well as the national level, um, are working to uh, to address this. When the dust finally does settle here, and we're looking back. How will we 
sort of try to learn on whether we responded properly here? Because I could imagine if it turns out that we really, really curbed the pandemic, it could be easy to interpret that as meaning it was never that serious. It could be interpreted to mean, hey, we need to always be that cautious. But it strikes me as as hard to think we would want to run through this type of uh, kind of closure of society every year or so if this becomes a prevalent recurrence. So I think, again, these are such unprecedented times. I mean, the world has, as in recent memory, has never seen anything like this, uh, certainly in, in most people's um, lifetimes. So um, I think there's certainly lessons learned. I think there's certainly challenges. We are, you know, not everything is being done um, uh, optimally. Uh, however, I think from what I've seen, and my experiences are mainly based in Rhode Island, I have really seen um, the government come together, partners, collaborators. I do think, you know, the clinical world, um, academia, everyone is trying to do the right thing. Um, everyone understands how really um, unprecedented these times are. And I've been really amazed and proud, actually, to be part of the response, at least here in our state in Rhode Island. I do think everyone's trying to do the right thing. There's people working around the clock to address this. There's also some degree of preparation that has been um, planned for this uh, for, for years. And so through things like um, Ebola for H1N1, um, uh, things like SARS, there has been some infrastructure that has been in place uh, for years now to deal with um, potential pandemics like uh, like this. And so um, as I, as I, uh, as we've discussed a little bit, you know, the state of Rhode Island itself has been preparing for months for this. So since uh, mid early January, when we first heard reports about this, uh, we have been we've been meeting daily. Obviously, that has um, uh, exponentially increased during the last month. Um, but we've been we've been planning for this for for at least a couple months, uh, even before we before the first cases were announced in our state. And I know many states have done this. So. I think certainly in retrospect and looking back, we'll be able to um, assess how people responded um, and how the system responded in general, where potentially the gaps were. But I have to say, I think that we've done uh, a good job today, and I've been really impressed how, um, at least in our state, really com the communities have come together, both government, um, uh, the clinical sector, uh, as well as even you know, you know, employers, et cetera. So. Um, I've, I remain optimistic that we will get a handle on this. I will say as of today is Monday, uh, March 16th, um, I will say that we did have uh, um, uh, a number of cases at the end of last week. I was reassured on Saturday there were actually no new reported cases, and there was only uh, one reported case uh, yesterday, Sunday. So hopefully uh, with the measures that have been taken in place, uh, we will be able to achieve uh, some control over uh, the spread of this virus. So let me wind us down with some some rapid Q&A, a number of these from listener questions that have come in. So one is that I keep reading about things I can do at home to test myself. So like holding my breath for 10 seconds, for instance. Is any of that really possible? So no. So the short answer is no. Uh, the only way to test yourself is through some of these uh, approved uh, clinical tests that are available through laboratories. Why is everybody wearing masks? Should I wear a mask? The short answer is no, there is no need to wear masks unless you're sick. So the mask, the surgical mask that you see people walking around with will protect other people from you should you be sick. Um, in fact, that's what's recommended in healthcare settings is that if you are sick, you should put on a surgical mask. So if you're not sick, um, there's really no need to wear one. 
And if you are sick, you should just be at home and not in public. And so I would also encourage the public to limit their buying of surgical masks because what's happened is they've taken away some of this precious um, PPE, surgical mask, et cetera, from the healthcare setting, and it's created shortages uh, in settings where it's needed. My grandparents keep getting advertisements for really cheap flights, and they consider it essential to come visit their grandkids. How can I describe to them that they shouldn't do this? Um, as we've discussed, uh, really this virus severely affects um, a large number of older adults. So if at all possible, people over 60 do need to practice uh, really um, strict social distancing to stay away. And so definitely avoiding any, avoiding any sort of travel, whether it be domestic or internationally, uh, for people 16 over is highly recommended. Is this a freak occurrence or are we in a new period of infectious diseases? I think a lot of us have been surprised that we haven't seen this uh, degree of a pandemic before. Um, hopefully, this is a one-time, uh, hopefully this is a rare occurrence. Um, hopefully, this COVID-19 will burn itself out across the world. Hopefully, we will have a vaccine, and hopefully, we'll reflect on this as a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. What's a proper way to refuse a handshake without just coming off like an a-hole? Yeah, I think at this point, most people understand. So what I've personally been doing for the past few weeks now is the elbow tap. And I think um, I think people realize what's going on. Um, you know, I'll say, you know, I'll say, hey, you know, pleased to meet you. Hey, I'm going to give you an elbow tap. Nothing, nothing personal, but just given what we're seeing, you know, and I think that most people understand that for sure. So last question, Dr. Chan, for those who want to learn more and stay informed, there's obviously a lot of information that's out there. Internet's a wild west. What's the one or two resources that you would most recommend people read and follow? Great question. So the CDC website uh, now has a very robust and large uh, collection of articles and guidance about what's going on. So I would definitely, definitely point people to the CDC website. It's evidence-based. It's formulated and discussed and put together by experts across the U.S. Uh, the WHO site, World Health Organization site, does have good updates internationally. And then local public health departments generally have good updates and guidance on what's going on locally as well. And then just watching um, reputable news sources as well can generally have some uh, good information as well. Dr. Phil Chan, thanks for joining 30,000 Leagues. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this special edition of 30,000 Leagues. We hope you enjoyed today's deep dive. This episode was hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Aidan Rasmussen. You can find more conversations at 30,000leagues.com, that's 30,000 all spelled out, or by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Should I be buying 80 rolls of toilet paper right now? So depending on how often you go to the bathroom, um, <laughs> my suggestion would be uh, probably that's a little bit of an overkill and not recommended. I mean, honestly, <laughs> what are you going to be doing with all that toilet paper? <laughs>